I have a verse that is um, stuck in my head this morning from Exodus chapter 20. It goes like this. So do not be afraid. God is only testing you. That's an oxymoron. How, how many of you love to take tests? Does masochism run in your family? How many of you fear taking a test? What do you feel when Yahweh is the one giving the test? How is one to not fear when Yahweh is giving the test? When I was in college, uh, the most famous tests were given by Wilbur Williams. Have you heard of this guy? If you're not from the Marion area, I should say that if you're not from the Midwest, you may not know Wilbur, but Wilbur, he, this guy's been to Israel, I think like a hundred times. He told me one time, I've, Steve, I've been in the air flying more than nine months. Think about that. He could have had a baby by as long as he was flying back and forth. So Wilbur had been to my house as a teenager. You know, I was in like, my dad was a preacher and he came one time and he spoke on apocalyptic literature from the Old Testament. This is how the world's going to end according to, you know, Gog and Magog and statue and 70 weeks and all that stuff, interpreting that. And he lived in our house for like a week while he was speaking. And so I would eat with him every day and I got to know him. And he was one of the friendliest people I've ever met. I didn't know he was smart. And one day, one day he said, hey, you know what? He found out that I played tennis and he said, let's go play tennis. He said, I, I, I think I can beat you. I said, you're on. We went out to Langrick Park. I wore the pads off that old guy's face. He was all, I was, he was like 40 or something. And he was dying by the time it was over. So when I got to IWU, I was thinking, man, I know this guy. And I take his Old Testament class and I start seeing questions. And he hands back my test and it's a C. I was a preacher's kid. I grew up memorizing scripture. And I started thinking, maybe there's more to the Old Testament than I thought. Then, halfway through, I took his king's test. I had never heard of Baasha, Yehu, Amaziah, Jehoahaz. And Wilbur was talking like he ate with them last week. This was not his career. These were his friends. And when I got my King's test back, I got an F. And he smiled and like he was paying me back and he, he was encouraging and loving. And that was the moment when it first occurred to me, if God is like Wilbur, I mean, think about it. They do have the same voice. <laughs> then maybe 
God could love you like Wilbur and still flunk you. Then, after I graduated and I came here, I started talking with him and he started telling me how he tested. He never gave the same test to everybody. He wrote four tests for every exam he gave. And every people in a row, every student in a row got a different test because that way you couldn't cheat on the person next to you. He was always thinking about this. He would take a term paper like this that a person would write and he would write on the on the fold here, the person's date. So for instance, he would write uh, J.M. for John McCracken, and then he would put like spring of, when did you, uh, 1874, <laughs> right? And then he would grade the paper, okay? And then next year, because students kept handing their term paper to their roommates the next year who turned them in, Wilbur would stack the term papers on the couch and before he graded them, he'd span it like this. See, if he wrote it in the margin like that, John would never see it. But when he peeled it back like that, he would look and if he saw Lois handed in J.M., spring of 1874, he wouldn't even read the paper. He would just F. <laughs> he told me one time he had four students turn in the same term paper verbatim. He graded it and gave it back to them, and they were livid. They said, why did you flunk us? And Wilbur said, I didn't flunk you. I gave you 100%. 25 to you, 25 to you. <laughs> this guy was always thinking. That's when it occurred to me, when he told me that, sitting on the atrium, it occurred to me, Wilbur was not just judging your intelligence. He was judging your character. For him, IQ meant not only your intelligence quotient, it meant your integrity quotient. Partway through the Exodus narrative, starting in chapter 15, right after Israel comes through the Red Sea and they have a worship service called the Song of Moses, there's a very strange word that appears in the story that does not appear any time before this. And that word is test. There... The Lord made a decree. There he tested them. 15 verse 25. Chapter 16 verse 3. Go out and gather every day what you need. For in this way I will test them. Chapter 20 verse 20. Do not be afraid for... 
Yahweh is only testing you. To test something is not just to examine it in the Bible. It is, it is to prove it by pushing it. You're trying to prove the quality of something when you test it. Like when a scientist tests the soil or they test the water, uh, they're, not, they're, they're, they're looking for qualities in the soil or the water to see whether or not you can trust it. And when you get into the poetic literature like Job, the word test is used to describe pushing somebody to the extreme just before they break down. You're trying to see what can they stand before they break down. And if you step back from the Exodus narrative, the first thing that strikes you, you guys, is that the testing always occurs in the wilderness. Never in Egypt. And so it always occurs to people that are already saved. Chapter 14, verse 30, they come out of the wilderness and Yahweh says, there I have saved you. So the people of God have already been saved. They're like you are. They're saved. And yet God is testing the people that are saved like he isn't testing the other people. And you notice that whenever people are said to be tested, something is wrong. There's a crisis. They're always out of something. They're out of resources. They're out of luck. They're out of time. They're out of options. And they're pushed to the brink. And then you notice that when Yahweh tests people, they never know they're being tested. For them, it's always a crisis. But for him, it's always a test. Yahweh is pushing his people to the brink to see what's in them. What are their limits? What are they capable of? And he's doing this not because he needs to know, but because they need to know. They need to be in a situation that is hard and unmanageable so they can see what is really in them because God's people in every generation tend to overestimate themselves. You still there? So what is he looking for? If you read through the wanderings in the wilderness, it occurs to you pretty soon that Yahweh is looking to see 
whether the people have truly left Egypt and are they truly headed to the promised land. What he's looking for is whether even though they're now free, are they still in bondage? Or are they truly, truly, really free? Are they stuck in a brickyard? Or are they headed for a festival? They don't know. So throughout the Exodus narrative, I start to see these tensions. I see that the people are caught between the ways of Egypt, their former life, and the life that Yahweh is calling them to. Can I give you a list? I'm going to, so I'll go, yes. You guys, this rattled me, and I'll tell you why in a moment. On the one hand, I see a mentality of scarcity, and on the other hand is the mentality of abundance. Egypt is the way of scarcity. We're going to run out. We never have enough. We got to find the number for our retirement. We have to overconsume. We have to worry about running out of bread. And Yahweh is calling them to a life of abundance. You do not have to worry about tomorrow because tomorrow will come and there will still be bread on the desert floor. If you save it, if you store it and keep it, it'll rot. But if you will trust him and eat today what he gave you today, he will give you more tomorrow. I think a lot of us in this room right now, and here it is, the older you are, the more you're tempted towards scarcity because you're worried about the number, you're worried about the market, you're worried about the number of years that you have left. When you're 22 years old, hey, we got time. But when you start losing members in your family and options in your future, can you feel it? You start sliding back from the promised land into Egypt. Are you there? This ain't even what I want to talk about, but I better hurry. The second tension that I feel is anxiety. Egypt is a, is a land of anxiety, and the promised land is a land of Sabbath. And the people of God today are always living between those two tensions. One, the land of anxiety, we are always 
clawing and striving. We feel the internal pressure to produce more and more and more. More bricks, less straw. We're always trying to impress somebody or to live something down. We're just running ragged just to keep up. We feel watched. But the land of Sabbath is a land where people, it doesn't mean quit. They rest. They pause even when the work is not done. People who live in Sabbath experience a form of Sabbath while they're working. Come unto me, take my yoke upon you. That sounds like, and you will find rest for your souls. Are you feeling it? We are this morning, some of us in this room, caught in this tension between high performance and the freedom to rest. Third tension. Fear. Egypt is a land of paranoia. Aggression. Fear causes us to resist our enemies. Fear is the mother of prejudice and depression. We must find a way to contain this Hebrew demographic because they're getting too many too fast. It's paranoia, it's fear that drives the people in Egypt. But over here is love and neighborliness. When you are free, says Yahweh, open up your country to foreigners because you remember you yourselves were once slaves in Egypt. You are to be people of hospitality because you're not afraid that someone's going to come in and displace the majority. You don't have to worry about that. You belong to Yahweh. This is a new nation that he is forming. It's a kingdom. It's not an empire. Emperors fear. Fourth, it's a, it's a tension between independence, protest, revolution, uprising. But the way of the promised land is the way of submission. I'll move on to the one I really want to talk about. 
because I think there's a lot of it in the room right now. Worry. Despair. Complaint. But the way of Yahweh is a way of trust. It's a way of promise. It is... It is the way of gratitude. There are three stories that occur right after they come out of Egypt, and they occur as a kind of triptych. If this were a painting, you would say each story is a panel on a three-panel painting called a triptych. Each story has details all of its own that are different from the others, but when you put them together, they form a message or a picture that is even larger than each one of the panels. Do you know what I'm talking about? Please say yes, because I sure don't want to explain that again. The first one occurs in chapter 15. We come through the Red Sea. We've been on the road just a few days and we are out of water. And we turn to Moses and we say to the leader, what are we going to drink? And Moses goes to Yahweh and says, the people are starting to grumble We've come to a pool that is wide and it's deep, but the water is bitter. And so we're nervous. We start saying we're out of resources and the one thing we could use is bitter. We can't use it. And Yahweh says to Moses, go over and pick up that stick and throw the stick into the pond. And when you do that, it will change the bitter water to sweet. So he does. He throws... He throws, you ever wonder how Moses like, oh, okay, would you not at least a little bit go, what? This is not scientific. But he does it. He throws it in and it changes the water to sweet and the people drink. And then Yahweh says, ah, I was testing you. You thought it was a famine. It was a test. Now, if you follow my decrees and you pay attention to my laws, do what is right, I will not bring on to you anything that I brought on to the Egyptians. For Wait for it. For I am Yahweh who heals you. I will take the bitterness out of you like I took it out of the water. I will change your bitter spirit to sweet. But, but you got to trust me and you got to do what I say. You there? 
Scene two, the center panel, is in chapter 16. The people go into another wilderness, and this time they run out of food. The cabinet is empty, and they start to feel it, and they start to complain. They go to Moses this time, and they say, so why did you bring us out in the wilderness? Was it just to kill us? Would what, to God we would have died back in Egypt, but no, you bring us out here to kill us. Yahweh overhears this. And says to Moses, tell the people to go out in the morning and gather bread for each day. And in this way, I'll test them. They think it's a famine. It's a test. So sure enough, Moses turns to tell the people, you must go out in the morning every day and you must take what you need for that day. If you store it for tomorrow, it'll rot. Take only what you need. And what happens, you guys, is when the people take only what they need, there is always enough. It says some people gathered a lot and some people gathered only a little, but at the end of the day, every person had enough. This is the economy of Yahweh. You don't worry about it. You don't have to fret. You don't have to try to build it up and hoard it. Yahweh will take care of you every day day. You can know this story and not know that. The people eat and are full. Third panel. They come to another desert. And this time in Rephidim, they are out of water again. And this time, the people don't grumble. They quarrel with Moses. They start to get aggressive. They start accusing him and threatening him. In fact, Moses goes to Yahweh and says, these people are not only hating me right now, they're fixing to stone me. I hope you have a plan. And Yahweh says, take the staff that is in your hand and take some of the elders of the, of the tribe. I want them to see this. Take them to that rock out there at Horeb. And when you get there, wait for it. When you get there, I will stand before you at the rock. And you are to strike it. And when you do, water will gush forth and the people will drink. Don't underestimate this miracle. This is not a trickle. There's 600,000 men plus their families. There's likely over 2 million people in this tribe. If every one of them drank one bottle of one liter of water, It'd take over a half a million gallons of water to water that crowd. This is not a slow trickle. This is a gushing waterfall of clean water that the people drink. And that's when Yahweh says, why have the people put me to the test? And they called it 
Meribah, the testing. Let's stop and draw some conclusions. What I can't figure out, you guys, is how these people can see the same miracle three times and it never dawns on them. How is that? They seem to have a cycle here. There is a crisis followed by worry, followed by protest or a grumbling or a quarreling, followed by a miracle, followed by another crisis, followed by more worry and more grumbling. You get to the end of chapter 17 and you start asking yourself, what on earth do you people need to see? Not only that, I wonder how it is people who have seen three miracles keep getting worse. In chapter 15, all they said was, what are we to drink? But in chapter 16, they said, oh, you're taking us out here to kill us. And in chapter 17, they said, is the Lord even among us? Well, what I can't figure out is how is it that people who have seen so much spiral downward instead of upward? You would think this would build confidence, but instead it builds a sense of entitlement. It's like, so you gave us water? Well, you were supposed to. You were God. And by the time you get to chapter 17, you're a little frustrated. Jeez, now I feel guilty because you all look passive right now. We're not frustrated at all. I was pulling my hair out. Look at me. <clears throat> so I didn't, I couldn't figure it out. I kept saying to the Lord, <laughs> I cannot find anything of why these people, and then it occurred to me, if what you're looking for is not there, look for what isn't there and should be. It was gratitude. They never said thank you. Three times. In all three miracles, Yahweh revealed something about himself they did not know. I am your healer, I am your provider, and I am always with you. And I didn't hear the first word of thanksgiving. So... Here's what I've come to tell you in four easy sentences. I hope I have these right. One, whatever you're worried about this morning is probably a test. Two,
you cannot cast out worry. You can only displace it with trust. Does no good for me to say, don't worry, don't worry. Anybody ever said to you, oh, don't worry? Oh. (sighs) What was I thinking? Worry will recede as fast as your capacity to trust advances. Trust pushes out worry. Three, trust is not a decision. It's a muscle. You have to work it. You have to build it. So you can only build trust through resistance. The stuff you're complaining about is building muscle. That's the purpose of the test. Trust is a muscle. You must build it. Four. Gratitude. Thanksgiving. Builds. The muscle. Of your trust. It's like Ethan said earlier in the service. How do you deal with something now and you don't know how to do it? Well, I look back and think of the times when I did the same thing and Yahweh was there. So oddly enough, the way out of worry is not to just not worry. It is to go back to the seasons in our life when God has done good things for us. Stop for a second. Look around the room, people. There is not a living soul in this room that God has not done great things for. There's not a soul in this room that has not forgotten those things in a week and worried about the same situation seven days later. I've done it and so have you. It's like we seem to learn nothing until we go back in our memory and say, wait a minute, there was a time when I was sick and God healed me. Remember when you were so nervous about COVID, you thought you were going to die, and yet here you are. We went through a season of lament. Have we ever gone through a season of thanksgiving? Or did we just take that for granted? Did we have more scientific answers for this? I am the God who heals you. When did God heal you? 
from what? I am the God who provides. Oh, there's not a person in this room who was not out of resources when somebody showed up with the very thing they needed. That's how we got by in the first 10 years of our marriage. People were not giving us Christmas or giving us checks. We wouldn't have had it, but it was always Yahweh, just in time, providing. I am the God who is always there. <laughs>